Welcome to the LSQ Podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and our vision is to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from Sunday worship and the occasional bonus content. We hope you'll subscribe. Today's scripture reading is from Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Amen. Good morning, everybody. My name is Bruce O'Neill, and I'm one of the pastors. And so this morning, I get the opportunity to uh, focus on this text. It's in the context of a series we're doing this fall on the DNA of our church, LSQ. And DNA just simply means, just like in the human body, it's the formula or the building blocks that make us who we are. And so to introduce this message, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. Uh, I'm not an artist. In fact, I cannot produce art, but I love art. But I remember when I was a kid, my, my elementary school got a kiln. And, and so in art class, they decided in their infinite wisdom that we were all going to make something out of clay. And so uh, when you get a bunch of nine-year-old boys uh, making something, it doesn't look pretty. And so we were supposed to make something that was uh, to take home to one of our parents. And so um, I, I formed the clay, you know, they kind of fire it and get it nice and hard. And then you paint it and you uh, take it to whom you uh, made it for and you give them. In this case, it was my dad. And, and I gave him this uh, kind of look like a bowl. And he said, what is it? And I said, Dad, it's, a, it's an ashtray. You, you smoke, and, and here's something that you can use. It did not look like an ashtray. The point of telling you that story is this. Knowing what something is for helps us understand what it is. That is, if you know why it was created, if you know to what end it exists, it helps you form in your mind an understanding of what it is. And that's the way the church is. Knowing what the church is for informs us what it is. And so this morning, I'm looking at the idea of the church and what it is for. Have you ever thought about that? Some people will say, well, the church is an organization. It has members and leaders and meetings. Got it. But it's more than an organization, right? 
It's also an organism. There are, there are relationship to each other. We're not just coming here, sitting in a chair, absorbing what is given, and then we have no relationship uh, to one another. That is, as an organism, or the way the Bible talks about the church is that it's a family, and in fact, not just any family, a family that in every other way, we are different. We're diverse ethnically, educationally, uh, even culturally in many ways. And yet, God pours all that in to his church and says, you're my family. You're my children. And so, people from different ways, because we believe in the same Christ, we believe in what he has done for us, we are family. And it is so true that you can pick your friends— but you don't get to choose your family. When you walk into the room, this could be a great church if so-and-so wasn't here. But the reality is we need to get used to one another because we're going to be together forever. So you might as well do it on this side of eternity. But what I want to focus on is not so much the fact that we're an organism or an organization, but simply we're a worldwide cosmic movement of the gospel. The church was created to be a worldwide cosmic movement of the gospel. That's why we're still here 2,000 years after the church began, that we take the gospel to the entire world. In order to do that, I want us to look at this text in three different— of course, it's a good Presbyterian sermon. It has three different points, and because I alliterated it for you, you can remember it. The church planted, the church persecuted, and the church purposed. So planted, persecuted, and purposed. What I'm not saying is that every church goes through this pattern of being planted, persecuted, and then purposed. That's not the point. The point is, is this is how the church, in which we are part of, got started. It was planted— it was persecuted, and because of its persecution, it was purposed. And so that's the pattern that we're going to look at. Not so much that it's for every church, because it's not, but it is how we got started. And so first, the church planted in verse 1. It says, Saul approved of their killing him, talking about Stephen. On that day, a great day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Okay, so when the church starts, Acts 1, the beginning of this book that we're, that we're looking at just one chapter of, I mean, really, just a portion of that chapter, if you go to back to uh, chapter 1, it's launched, there are 500 followers of Jesus plus 11 apostles. That's the entirety of the church. We know that because it says that when Jesus resurrected, over 500 people saw him and believed after the resurrection. We know that's roughly the number, give or take. Okay, we also know at the beginning, they're in Jerusalem and they stay there. And so a natural question is, why in the world 
Would these Christians who had been told way back at the beginning, first uh, Jesus says, uh, preach the gospel to the whole world. And then at the beginning of Acts, he says, but you're going to receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Why did they stay in Jerusalem when their mandate was to take that gospel and become a movement in the world? So you have to ask the question, why in the world would that something that started out stay there? Well, it stayed there, I think, primarily for this reason. In Acts 2, Peter gets up and preaches in Jerusalem. And, and because they don't have a building, they're, they're, they're at the temple. And Peter gets up and he starts speaking. And at the end of his message, 3,000 people believed and joined that church there in Jerusalem. Then in Acts 4, maybe just the next Sunday, we have no idea, but pretty soon after that, Peter gets up and preaches again, and it says that 5,000 people believed and joined the church. So what was about 500 plus became 3,500, became 8,500 in a couple of weeks. And so you can imagine if you're uh, a John Doe or a Sally Smith and you're in the congregation and you heard Jesus say, go to the world, why go to the world? They're all coming to Christ here. This is where it's happening. This is where people's lives are being transformed. This is where God seems to be moved. Why would we go out there? So the understanding of why they didn't go is because there's such an explosion of growth here. And we want to be part of it. We want to see it. There are people who are lame that are walking. There are people who are blind who are now seeing. There's great excitement. I mean, this is long before the music got good. This is long before they had children's programs, long before the youth ministry got launched. This is simply when two, uh, one guy gets up and he preaches and the church becomes 8,000 because of the Lord. And before we get too hard on them, I think we would have done the same. We would have looked at that church and said, that's the happening place and I want to be part of that. And so I'm going to hang out there. Many of you who have joined LSQ or just started attending the last couple of years may not know, but LSQ is part of a movement that started about 30 years ago. In 1989, I was a brand new missionary, my wife and I, and, and we were at this mission conference in Nashville. And new missionaries, we didn't get opportunities to talk. It was a big church. And so they had this big time speaker come in and do the missions conference. His name was Tim Keller. It's before he launched Redeemer, he came to talk about what a gospel movement in New York City would look like. It sounded great. And from afar, that's something I would have wanted to be part of. And I've been able to watch the Redeemer movement of the gospel in New York City for the last 30 years from afar, and I'm so glad I get to be part of it now. And so are you. But the truth is, though it is an amazing story of God's blessing upon the city of New York, it's not 1889 anymore. It's not 1999 it's not even 2009 anymore. Everything has changed. Everything's changed in our country. Everything has changed in our city. Things are very different. 
now. I was reading in this book. I, I won't even tell you to go buy the book because I'm going to give you the two points he makes and then save you all that money. Because he only makes two points. His name is Todd uh, Bollinger. He's a professor out in Denver Seminary, and he wrote this book based on um, what he was seeing happening in the country. And he, and he does it because he's a good historian. He does it in the context of the Lewis and Clark expedition that started in 1804 from uh, uh, Missouri. So he, he, he said, you know, the, they, they launched out of uh, uh, Missouri on the Missouri River and went west. They were mapping. We had just gotten this huge piece of land called the Louisiana Purchase, and we were supposed to map, they were supposed to map that out. A guy named Lewis and Clark and Jefferson had sent them out. They had all the money and 40 guys uh, uh, to uh, canoe uh, the Missouri River. Now, he says that every discoverer, every explorer up to that point believed in two things about the United States. One was that there was a Northwest Passage that would connect the Missouri River to the Columbia River through the Rockies. Everybody believed that, that there was a way from the Atlantic to the Pacific uh, through the uh, river system. And so that's why they were wanting canoers, people who could canoe. And so they canoed. But as they got closer and closer to the Rockies, they could not find a passage through those mountains by canoe. And so here's Lewis and Clark, and they've got these 40 guys who are starting to get concerned that they're running out of water because as you get closer to the Rockies, the water is not as deep and broad. And so he, they're convincing, how do you convince 40 men to change their skill set from canoers to mountain climbers? Because that's what they had to become if they were ever going to get to the other side where the Columbia River was. And so that's one of the things that they wanted to do is train them, and they did. And when they got to the other side, this is the other belief that every discoverer thought about the United States, that the west side of the, of the uh, Rocky Mountains was just like the east side of the Rocky Mountains. Everybody believed that, that once you go over the mountains, the terrain, the, the, the livestock, the animals, everything would be the same. And so when they got over the mountains and found out, it was not the same. And not only that, it was so different, uh, they didn't know how to transverse, how to uh, get across to the Pacific Ocean. And so they ran into this uh, uh, trader, this Canadian trader who had married an Indian, uh, who taught them how to live in that land, how to hunt, how to fish, and how to make it all the way uh, to the Pacific I tell you that because here's the two points. You and I who grew up in the United States for the last 100 years, it's becoming less and less where there are people who think like we do, who have a Christian uh, perspective of background or at least appreciation. And so we're moving into a culture that is not even just secular, but postmodern, which uh, simply means that there is no foundation of who we are. And even that is being dis, dis, uh, deconstructed, whatever that might be. And so the terrain has completely changed. That 
the future is not going to be like the past. And therefore, here's the other lesson, everything that we have done for the last hundred years in this gospel movement has to change because it's no longer working. That does not mean it doesn't work somewhere. There are parts and pockets in the United States that you can go, and the gospel, the way that we presented the gospel, the the methodology that we had, the systemized way that we talked about Christianity still works, particularly in places like the Bible Belt and parts of the Midwest. But you get on uh, outside of those areas, and they have become more and more secular and will continue to become more and more secular. And therefore, the church is challenged. How do you address the changes that, that we once had? And I think that's where we find ourselves, is how do we change? You know, I think one of the things that challenges us is that the church has this disposition by default. And that is that we tend to answer questions that the previous generation asked as if the current generation are still asking them. I'll try it again. We seem to have a default as a church to answer questions that the previous generation asked as if the current generation is still asking them. Let me give you an example. If you lived 120 years ago, the average sermon you can go look at them, talked a lot about death. The reason we talked a lot about a death is because the life expectancy was quite short. 120 years ago, the life expectancy was in the 50s. 200 years ago, the life expectancy was in the upper 30s. Not only that, everybody who had children lost children in the United States. So death was always before us. Death was always close. And so The question on people's hearts was, is there life after death and how do I get that? Because this life is short. So when people said, and we sang it a little earlier, uh, breath is hard to measure because it's so short. It doesn't quite resonate in the 21st century because we are living so much longer than our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, but the other problem is that you and I live in a culture that hides death from our eyes, and so we don't see it, except when there's a pandemic. That came crushing back in, didn't it, for a brief two years, and it's, it's interesting to see how fast we have forgotten. And so to ask somebody, if you die tonight, and you stood before God, and he asked you, why should I let you in my heaven, which was the question of the 20th century. Nobody thinks that way anymore. Or let's say it this way. There are pockets that still that question is apropos to ask, but not in most of the world, and certainly not the United States, in most of the United States. And so when this church was planted... It was answering a question of their day, and you saw so many people come and want to hear what they had to say. My guess is if Peter got up in uh, Times Square and somebody gave him a megaphone and he gave that same message, most people would just walk by and not even notice because it's not the question of the day. And yet it was the question of their day. 
At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after worship on Sundays. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastoral team and other members of our church community. If you have a question, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us at Q&R on a Sunday morning. And now, back to this week's sermon. All right, so that's the church planted. It's, it's about uh, 8,500 plus people. But then it begins to get persecuted. Verse 2, godly men buried Stephen who was stoned. We saw that in verse 1. And mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. These two men motivated and shaped the church into a gospel movement in the world. First, Stephen. Who is Stephen? Stephen, in chapter 6, is a deacon. That is, he was one of six people that were appointed to take care of the poor, specifically poor that were not of Jewish background. That is, uh, Greek Jews, people who from a Greek background culturally came into the church uh, believed and needed to get taken care of, particularly widows needed to be taken care of because they had children, their husbands had died when they were young. And so Stephen was one of them. But the other job of deacons, and I, and I want to challenge our deacons, is they preach the gospel. Stephen heralded the gospel in Jerusalem. It wasn't just Peter preaching over here and everybody said, that's the professional, we're the amateurs. We're the lay people. We're just going to hang out here. We're going to hope Peter's sermon is good this week. There was Stephen preaching the gospel. He finally gets arrested and he gets, he gets uh, stoned or martyred uh, for his faith. And what we know from verse 1 is that Saul approved of the message. He, the message was, you can't be a Christian and live in Jerusalem. And so... Here you have Stephen who's being martyred, and that's been part of the church from its very beginning. You know, uh, when my children were young, we we'd do these family devotions, and sometimes I would run out of things, and so I got this book off my shelf that I thought, oh, this would be great, they'll love it. At least I loved it. Uh, it was Fox's Book of Martyrs, and that was our family devotions for almost a year. And you're laughing because that's the way my children responded. They thought, come on, Dad. It, there's lots of funny things in it. I'll explain it at another time. But, but in the book itself, it tells the story of the Oxford martyrs, which are these three men who, by faith, uh, stood up for the gospel, and as a result, they were burned at the stake. Uh, uh, first, it was Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, and uh, they would not recant uh, their faith and pledge allegiance uh, to uh, uh, to Rome, and so they were burned at the stake. And then this famous phrase comes out of there, Master uh, uh, Ridley, uh, play the man. We shall this day light such a candle that by God's grace will never be put out. And it is so true in England. After their death and the death of the third man, a guy named Thomas Cromwell, who had been the Archbishop of Canterbury, who watched their burning, and because he had already signed a recantation, and an allegiance, he put his hand in the fire until it had burned off. The very hand he signed the document with. 
These guys were all called the Oxford martyrs, and there are many, many others, but they fulfilled a prophecy from the fourth century that Tertullian, a theologian, said. And he said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That is, the church grew because we took inspiration and motivation from their faith. When many of us would have given in, they stood firm. And because they stood firm, we can stand firm. Tremendous motivation. The other man that's in our list, if, if Stephen is one reason that you're here today, he's your father in the faith. The other one is a guy named Saul. And Saul was a persecutor of the church. He was a, he was a Pharisee. He, from, the, from the age of about five, he went to live with his aunt in Jerusalem, became a Pharisee of Pharisees. He, he hung around and became a great theologian, but he also became a great persecutor of the church. He saw what Stephen was doing and wanted to tamp out Christianity. And so on, on behalf of the uh, Sanhedrin, he represented and went door to door looking for Christians. And if he found one, he would persecute them, even putting them in prison and in some cases, just like Stephen, put to death. Later, that fellow becomes Paul, the greatest missionary the church has ever known, the greatest church planner we have ever had shows you how God uses people like that. But the other thing he did was he incited a mob that began looking for Christians. They became bloodthirsty. And you know this happens when, when one person fervently is against a group of people, he can rally and rile up people, and they became bloodthirsty. It wasn't just Paul doing this. Neighbors were turning in neighbors. Hey, I had heard so-and-so had become a Christian. You might want to check them out. And so you were being turned in by your neighbors, and Saul was the one who sent people to your home. Christians became fair game. And as the result of Stephen's um, inspiration as a martyr, and because of Paul's or Saul's persecution, the church became a worldwide movement of the gospel. Verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So Christians in Jerusalem got scattered. And the scattered ones scattered the gospel. You can't deny the beauty of God's sovereignty. If you won't leave Jerusalem because it's the place that really things are going on, I'll get you out of Jerusalem. Because as they were persecuted, they left. And as they left, they took the gospel with them and they began to proclaim it wherever they went. Let me handle two quick uh, objections that people have here. W one is from the outside of the church. They hear us talk about evangelism. They hear us talk about sharing our faith. And they say, well, wait a minute now. Religion is a private matter. Please don't talk about Christianity in the public square. In fact, it just seems like in this culture that we live in, you can talk about anything but your faith. But that's not intellectually honest, is it? To say that you can believe in something fervently that changes your life, that transforms you, you can't tell anybody else about it? We don't do that with restaurants. We don't do that with movies that we have seen. We don't do that with anything but our faith. Penn Gilliatt, who is part of the team of Penn and and uh, Teller, it's a comedian group magician, slash magician. And so he's an atheist. And somebody asked him in an interview, uh, Penn, what do you think about Christians who uh, are evangelists, who share their faith? And you kind of expect an atheist to say, it's a private matter. I, I, they can believe whatever they want. It, it's, uh, 
It's a, a, a way to make them feel better. It's a crutch, those kinds of things. But this is what he said. He says, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. That's a, a word for evangelism, who share their faith. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there is a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it will make it socially awkward, this is the quote I love. How much do you have to hate somebody to not tell them about salvation? How much do you have to hate someone to believe in everlasting life and not tell them that it's possible? The second objection from inside the church is if God is going to save whomever he wants anyway, why do evangelism? God's going to save whoever he wants. Romans 10, very famous passage, says it this way, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. There's your universal offer of the gospel. But then it goes on and says, how then will they call upon whom they have not believed? And how will they believe on him who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring goodness. What this means is God has so tied salvation to the proclamation of the gospel. That is, you can't, you can't go to the Grand Canyon and be inspired and follow God. You can't go to the great... Mississippi River and see how its beauty and say, you know what? I'm now going to believe in Jesus. You literally have to have someone tell you the goodness that Jesus Christ on our behalf stood in our place and died the death that we should have died for our sin and lived the life that you and I should have lived so that we can have his righteousness and be accepted by God. The beauty of the gospel. So the church purposed verse a four. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he had said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was a great joy in that city. There's a lot there. We don't have time for the lot, but let me give you the nugget. Who left and who stayed? Did you read? Lay people, regular people, left the city. It was the apostles who stayed. It was you who went as the scattered ones and scattered the gospel. We have ma often made too much of the professionals because so much of our lives are designed around professionals serving us. When in reality, the church became a worldwide movement of the gospel by the lay people, wherever they went. That's what Matthew 28 says. Jesus, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have taught you. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Who's he talking to? He, he's talking to those disciples, but they didn't initially go. Initial goers was the average person in the church. The truth is, you and I can be moving in today's world, but not be part of the movement. 
We can be all about moving in the city, outside the city, around the world, but not be part of the movement itself. And the movement is bigger than Redeemer. It's bigger than one church's impact. It's bigger than one movement of churches. It's bigger than all the churches because it's God's movement in the world. You and I need and want everyone involved. There was a day that you and I could argue and quibble over the differences between one another and keep apart from one another. But because the church in the United States in particular is so much smaller than it was just 100 years ago, that we cannot afford any longer the luxury of debating our differences. When the world needs to hear what Jesus, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That's why Jesus will utter when he looks out at the world, he says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And that's still true 2,000 years later. I love the result. Here's the nugget. There was great joy in that city. There's great joy in that city because of two things that the scattered did. They preached the gospel and don't mean that they got up on street corners, although they did that. Most of them, it was in their version of coffee shops and uh, 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 libraries and places of meeting where they sat down and, and they talked about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So one was the preaching of the gospel, the other one was in a deed ministry and they accompanied one another. Most people were marveled at Christians because of the way in which they lived their lives, that their lives were so transformed it looked different than their neighbors. Now, I don't mean they looked weird. Sometimes we think weird is the same thing as being different. It's not. We Christians are not to be weird. We are to be different. We allow the gospel to transform us. I love the uh, end of uh, Les Mis. And in the end, there's this great song. They're about to go to the barricades. The, the fight is about to happen. And, and uh, everybody wants what? One more day. Everybody wants one day more before the battle or the lost love or the thousands of things that they wish their lives were more about. And so comes out these words, one a day more before the storm at the barricades of freedom. Shall I join my brothers there is the question. When our ranks begin to form, do I stay and do I dare? Will you take your place with me? 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, go, preach this gospel to the world. Will you stay or will you go? You don't ever have to leave the city to bring the gospel to bear into people's lives who are feeling that this world is breaking around them. Their lives are breaking. Everything that seemed to be good and healthy and strong seems less in those ways. And yet we have the answer. Ladies and gentlemen, it, it's like knowing the cure to cancer but keeping it to ourselves. Cancer can only kill you in this life. Eternity is forever. You and I have the ability to come into the broken places of our city, into the broken lives of our friends and family and coworkers and say, there is a solution.
His name is Jesus Christ. And he came to live a life for you that you could not live and to die a death you could not die so that you could live. We have already been scattered. Will we join? Or will we remain silent to the greatest story that has ever been told? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that this is true. Even though we don't want to, anyone to feel guilty about their participation in the storm. Rather, we'd want them, Heavenly Father, to be motivated, just as the early church was motivated by the inspiration of our father, Stephen. And as we were pushed out into the corners, the darkness of our world, to bring the light. Help us to feel the urgency that every child who sings the song, are you going to hide your light under a bushel, feels. Let us go into our world with the message of the gospel, of the light of Jesus Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We pray that it's a helpful resource as you process aspects of Christianity and grow in your faith. To learn more about our church, including details about Sunday worship, check out our website at RedeemerLSQ.com.